You're listening to And what's poppin' everybody? Welcome back to Good Pop. This is episode 7. Uh, we are in week, is it 2? Week 2 of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. The longest month of the year, especially now that... The uh, only month we exist, Marvin. <laughs> the only month we exist. So I look forward to poofing back into non-existence in two weeks. I know. So I can get some goddamn rest. <laughs> Popping back into non-existence while we wait out. Um, I think LA County, at least, has extended our lockdown till the end of july safer at home marvin safer at home is this it's still a, it's safer a rebrand at home? shelter and place safer at home i mean <laughs> you know we're la we're very good at the rebrand um and the the image the image machine so let's honor that <laughs> we're safer at home you're listening to the best pop culture podcast for your safer at home needs uh, my name is marvin you're joining me to talk about the pop culture that gets us through our days just you Self-proclaimed professional Asian American. Yeah, and I feel like as a professional Asian American, this month is definitely when I go beast mode, Super Saiyan 3. I'm skipping the two entirely. My I hair is growing. There's I'm like glowing. at least seven levels now. There's like now it's like a white hair. Like I haven't followed Dragon Ball in like decades, but as far as I know, there's like a level seven now. Oh no, something. as soon as I could like start driving, I stopped watching Dragon Ball because I had <laughs> things to do and i didn't have to watch a punch over three episodes anymore but it was it was good <laughs> while it lasted and i have a fond memories also joining us is culture editor han Wen. hey han hey 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 <laughs> how's this lockdown how's this safer at home treating you as a I, full-time professional writer who has been working from home since last september anyway um you know it's it's all right. Like I, it's it's just interesting to me how everyone has joined me, and that is what's made the difference. So that's true. Oh man, I do miss people. Some people. Some people. Yeah, I didn't think I would, but actually, I think I miss eating out the most. Oh, once again, pouring out for the admittedly terribly named Sioux Plantation that is the core to many of our childhoods. We will miss you. I literally went out the day after and I bought some broccoli to make some Jones broccoli madness. <laughs> but my parents apparently used the broccoli for broccoli beef, which I think metaphorically says something as well, but it's fine. <laughs> I'll just next time I go out, you know, I'm trying to avoid going to a grocery store too much. So next time I go. Jones go broccoli, broccoli madness was the only time I would actually eat raw broccoli because any yeah, other time, yeah, when it's, it's kind coated of gross, in mayonnaise right? and sugar, definitely. But <laughs> give, give them decoy some. broccoli, like mm. get two broccolis for them, one for them. Yes, yes, and then you know, just like throw a broccoli out for the soup plantation, sweet tomatoes that didn't make it through. This is how, um, Jess. I know we're gonna. This is adjacent here. What's popping? But uh, do you guys remember the '90s hit action classic, Demolition Man? No, oh, yes. I haven't seen that yet. Should I put that oh, on my yes. list? Yes, please do okay. it. I, it is so insane. It's hilarious. So one of the points, because it takes place in a future Los Angeles, right? And one of the the like background world building bits is there was a giant recession sometime in the near future. And every single restaurant chain was wiped out except for Taco Bell. 
And so now Taco Bell is a white cloth, like the only restaurant in the world. You know, I respect that. People like to rag on Taco Bell. It's definitely not Mexican food, but it's <laughs> it's it's there when you need it. And I have never had any problems with Taco Bell. I even tried to get reservations for their Palm Springs resort, but that <laughs> filled up like so fast. Yeah, would you get married at the well, now that Vegas is over? I don't know if it'll ever happen, but they have a cathedral at the Las yeah, Vegas. Yeah, Vegas. I have I've considered I have considered getting married there my boyfriend is from vegas and it kind of started off as a joke and the more i thought about it i was like i'd probably be down it's probably better wedding food than i've had at some other weddings i've been to let's be real <laughs> affordable food, wedding banquet food is terrible if i was a cow i'd be mad to be that you know that overcooked steak but as like chinese people we we have pretty bombed wedding food though like the banquet yeah if, if, like if you're gonna have a chinese wedding yes i think that's really fun but I still still jury out on that it's just it, it is actually very cheap to compared to having a you know big western style wedding at a at a ranch somewhere <laughs> you know something ranch mm. where they upcharge you for renting like a chair chinese restaurants like yeah we got chairs whatever take whatever you need they're so chill it's great i um Speaking of weddings, I feel like whichever generation it is right now who is avoiding wedding season, it's like the best time for them because they're saving so much money. Whoever, oh my god, how is, many right? how many weddings were you supposed to have gone to in 2020 that are now postponed or have been downsized? I had four on my books that I'm pretty sure none are happening this year. Wow. Yeah, I only had the one, but yeah. I'm of that age, you know? Same like, here. I, think, I only had one. Yeah. <laughs> I think when you're younger, you have so many every year, and then all of a sudden it starts petering out. Yeah, this was the have first the, the year that it was going to be like my actual like classmates, like kids my year. Um, and right. So now, so I was I like kind of still kind of excited about it, you know, because I haven't been wedding out yet. And it was, <laughs> probably would have been nice to see some old friends. And I love you know, attending a wedding. Like, oh, uh, yeah, if I ever get married, I'm not going to have a wedding, but I love attending weddings. I might have a, a reception just because, you know, that's the best part. Well, speaking of weddings, <laughs> I have no this good segue here. <laughs> well, we all- <laughs> oh, 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 here's a segue. Um, so, Jess, you wanted to ha- you were considering having your wedding reception at Taco Bell or at least, you know, with Taco Bell catering. So uh, it seems like you've had a lot of great ideas for weddings. What was your yes. most recent one? Oh, yes. So backstory. One of the ways I have been dealing with the anxiety of the COVID-19 pandemic and our shelter in place order is I have been planning my future wedding to my boyfriend. No, he's not even my fiance yet, but we've talked about it. We're on the same page. Not that crazy. But uh, we're also long distance, so we have not actually seen each other since the beginning of March, and it's kind of up in the air when we will see each other next. And he is a doctor, so he's a frontline worker. So like a lot of different anxieties all bundled together. So to combat this, I have been um, actively, not imaginatively planning our future wedding. And my current theme of choice is Face Off, the 1997 John Woo-directed action movie starring Nick Cage and john travolta right all right i think i need to i need to uh i need to bring <laughs> us into this, this no we, we need to bring into us into the segment because i haven't asked you what's popping okay uh, okay what's popping all right now now continue okay so that's what's popping my face off themed wedding i in the week since i have last spoken to both of you i have watched 
The Rock, Con Air, and Face Off, which I think undoubtedly is the 90s Nick Cage action trifecta. And it just keeps getting crazier with, I think, I think Face Off was the last one of the three. And wow, like watching 90s slash pre 9-11 action movies, like when everything was good and the economy was popping and Jerry Bruckenheimer had like un, had a blank check to do whatever he wanted. It was truly an experience. Um, so, so my face-off theme wedding would take place in a small Catholic chapel by a seaside. There would just be doves flying everywhere. We'd both be wearing matching suits, um, <laughs> and um, there would be some form of uh, gun shoot-off with a la Joan Allen in the climax scene. And our first dance would be to that version of "Somewhere Over the Rainbow," oh. but like guns would be going off all around us i like how basically john woo is your wedding planner oh definitely john woo can plan my life at this point like this it's so funny because i grew up really you we've seen these tropes these action tropes you know and satires and people have made fun of it there's a whole community episode directed by justin lynn that is devoted to homaging john woo and his visual you know film style and I was like, oh, it can't be that crazy, right? They're obviously exaggerating. And then you watch the actual product and you're like, holy shit, they are not exaggerating at all. Like the first scene is Nick, John Travolta's character gets shot by Nick Cage through his son at a merry-go-round on this like really hazy, like sepia tone effect, which cuts directly into Nick Cage as the bad guy planting a dirty bomb and then running through the LA convention center as a priest and like sexually molesting a teenage choir girl. Like this is all in the first like five minutes. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. I feel like face off, which to me was a movie that, and like I watched with my dad when I was probably way too young to watch face off. Um, it took place in that, in, like that perfect cross section, that perfect intersection where the Nick Cage action essence met the John Woo renaissance especially jong woo in america because this was the five-year period where he was making all the action movies he made broken arrow he made face off and then he made mission impossible 2 and i think i feel like face off is when he hit his peak without going over because like no because no, i don't think we can i think nick cage is the perfect vehicle for someone like john woo versus a tom cruise takes himself too seriously mm -hmm. like i i do think as far as insane as nick cage now is in our popular mindset, you know, in the collective culture of being Nick Cage, quote unquote Nick Cage. You have to think that this guy knows he's dialing it up to 15 and knows this is not a subtle, this is not a serious performance. You know, he's having fun with it. John Travolta's having fun with it. Mm. But this I kind of miss that. But this is also the man who has his own pyramid. Like, he does have his own pyramid. So, I mean, I guess one day I'll just have to meet Nicolas Cage in person and ask him myself. <laughs> but it's just action movies today are just so serious and they're so dour. And I think there's a time and place for it. And I, I do think every post Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, that's when we saw this really intense uptick to like very dark and moody and serious. And I'm just like, I, I want like cheesy catchphrases i want things to blow up i want i want crazy concepts like the man pulling his face off 
and switching it with his mortal enemy. <laughs> I, I, I mean, <laughs> I know, think that's that's one of the reasons why we love the Fast and Furious franchise. Yes, I do because think the Fast and the so Furious fun. is the closest we're getting in terms of major studio action films. Hobbs and Shaw, especially if you mm-hmm. haven't seen that. But even then, those are still more grounded in reality <laughs> than like concepts like Face Off or Con Air. Um, <laughs> these are definitely movies where they came up with a crazy title first and they're like, all right, we got to build a story around this, guys. So I would love to see more of that. But that is that's what's popping with me. Han, what's popping with you? You know, it's it's funny because I I have a TV show I was going to talk about and I am going to talk about it, but I was just like it's going to pale in comparison to Face Off. <laughs> um so Prodigal Son is on Fox and yes. it's about a guy whose dad ended up being a serial killer named the surgeon. And that actor is Michael Sheen. He is in jail. And, and now that son is grown up and he is now a, a profiler um, who helps out the police. But occasionally he's for some reason, he keeps calling his dad in jail for like consults and stuff. <laughs> but here's the funny thing. I think a lot of people, when they first saw it, thought it was straightforward. It's actually a comedy. and um, But it sometimes walks the line so finely that you don't get it. And um, the reason why I'm bringing this up is I just finished it. on my, It was on my DVR. It finished a few weeks ago. But uh, the way it applies to us, let's say, is uh, Keiko Agena um, is in it as the uh, medical examiner who like you know does the autopsies and she kind of has a crush on this main guy and it's so cute the way she does it because of course she's hilarious <laughs> um, but uh, it, I feel like we really need more of her in season two but I, I just oh. feel like everyone needs to watch the show. Oh, we need more Keiko Gaina in general. Like, in every way. Right. Not enough she Keiko w- in I mean, in my life. <laughs> I was so happy that this is doing well enough that it's going to get a season two because I we all thought that with the first, right? That she was in, like, she was in a very serious, good role. It was on Hulu, but no one watched it. So this is why I was like, well, you know, kind of like a procedural, but with slight comedic undertones on Fox. And uh, sure enough, it, it, it's just... If you can check it out, I don't know if it's a, like on Hulu or not. Oh, by and now, people but. like people are shipping her and um, this main dude. What's his face? Bright. Bright. Malcolm Bright is the character's name, and the actor is Tom Payne. Yeah, yeah. people have fan art of her character with they Malcolm should. Bright. <laughs> they really should because who understands him more and more except <laughs> all of his? Because he also has darkness in his soul, and uh, also that's stars why he uh, Lou Diamond Phillips. Yes, as it's, it's, a lieutenant. It's in a the lovely NYPD. multicultural show. <laughs> We stand, we stand. Yeah, and Michael Sheen, who is an acclaimed actor, he's done some fucking great, amazing stuff, loves this role so much, which I was shocked he even took this role, but he loves it so much that he even did like an extra like webisode um, <laughs> all in this character. And you know, he didn't need to do that. You know, they could have done webisodes on any other supporting character, but no. He wanted to do it because he loves the show. I have a theory that Michael Sheen is probably one of the most enjoyable people to be around on this planet. Um, yes, like he is. I'm sure he's a lovely man. I don't know him, but like, like you know, just a pretty average-looking British middle-aged British dude. Um, it had has a had had a long-term relationship and child with Kate Beckinsale. Um, even after they broke up, they remained very good friends, and she considers him like one of 
her favorite people and closest friends, and then dated Rachel McAdams, mm-hmm. and then dated Sarah Silverman. I was like, I don't know what she, you got, dude, but he is good totally for you. charming. No, in person he is charming, and he 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 knows kind of what he's getting into because like. In this role, he does the crazy eyes with a smile, and it's so great because he's supposed to also be a loving father, but then say stuff like, yeah. But but, he's like a serial killer. But he's a serial killer, of course. Um, But yeah, so it's so great. I... I've been trying to get other people to watch, but it's sort of hard to sell it unless you like really get the tone. Oh, so. you sold it to me. Like, uh, <laughs> ser- I'm like, okay, he's guy who profiles serial killer dad. All right, I see the tension, yeah. but a comedy? Yeah. <laughs> what? But it's not over the top. Like, you almost have to watch it closely to kind of get the line readings every now and then. Uh, his uh, Malcolm Bright's mom is, what's her phrase from Scandal? Um, Bellamy Young, who played yeah, Melly. Bellamy Young, yes. So it's it's pretty good. Um, I and I enjoyed the finale. So whenever we get a new season, who knows? So Marvin, what's popping with you? So um, I haven't had much time to watch much of anything besides what we're talking about later today, which is the PBS docuseries um, Asian Americans. But I did add a audio drama to my podcast rotation for this week while I was running errands around town. So I listened to Nevada Tan, which is an Audible original um, audio play that they commissioned uh, sometime last year, written by playwright um, Leah Nanako Winkler, who is a playwright that has mounted a ton of plays through East West Players and around the nation, um, probably best known for her comedies like Kentucky and Two Mile Hollow. This audio play, Nevada Tan, is a little bit darker than her her usual stuff. Um, it's more of a psychological thriller. It's about a boy in high school who, because of the Columbine shootings, becomes stigmatized by his school because he kind of fits the profile of a alone, weird kid who's kind of antisocial and very misunderstood, um, even though he's just a lonely kid who likes anime, likes to draw, and kind of is just finds it hard to relate to people. Uh, because of how they've been treating him his entire life. And he finds solace in this um, real-life story in from Japan about a, I think it was a 12-year-old girl who murdered one of her classmates. It made national news in Japan because murder is kind of a rare thing over there. Um, and it explores the questions of, you know, is it nature or nurture that causes these things to happen? Are people just born bad? Are these bad to the core? Or are they made that way? And you see through the story a lot of, I guess, a critique on all the systematic failures of educators, of people who should have been supportive or understanding of his situation, who continuously let him down because of their own fears and biases and prejudices, and eventually the consequences of those cumulative actions. Um, yeah, it's real feel good, uh, story. Yeah, super light, super light. <laughs> but yeah, definitely, um, was glad to be able to listen to a play written by an Asian American playwright and really excited to see, uh, more people venture into the world of audio, um, fiction storytelling, uh, so I can have more stories on the go. Uh, so yeah, I guess that's what's popping. That works. I mean, honestly, that's how I listen to almost all of my podcasts and stuff is when I'm doing chores or errands or I'm walking. So since I haven't been exercising lately, I'm behind on my podcast. That's my excuse. <laughs> so um, yeah, I, but yeah. I haven't been driving, so I haven't mm-hmm. been able to listen to a lot of my podcasts. Yeah. 
I need to, yeah, plan activities so that way I can like <laughs> listen to some stuff and including audiobooks and, you know, audio narratives. So, yeah, uh, good recommendation. Yeah, for sure. And that's what's popping for this week. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk all about the new PBS docuseries, Asian Americans. Kathy, Kim, Steve, what's going on? Tell me, what do you know about K-dramas? Oh, um, they have something to do with the drama that comes from K-cup coffee pots, because you know they're bad for the environment? Uh, no. Oh, you mean Korean dramas? Yeah, I know that they are very grounded in reality. No, that's actually the opposite of what happens. It, it sounds like you don't know anything about K-dramas. Yeah, I was just guessing. That's actually perfect. Remember Will, Phil, and Joanna did that Korean drama podcast? Yeah, they saw Boys Over Flowers. Yes, and people apparently listen to it and want another season. But Will and Phil are still recovering from that season. Oh my god, are they okay? I did hear they tried to give themselves amnesia. Oh, is that a K-drama thing? Yeah, pretty much. So... Are you guys down to help out with the new season of the Korean drama podcast? So we're going to be watching a K-drama this time? Which one? Secret Garden from 2010. It was a big hit. And if you're down, check out the Korean drama podcast at koreandramapod.com. Gotcha! Am I going to see sauna towel buns? Welcome back to Good Pop. This week, we're talking all about the new PBS documentary series, Asian Americans, um, arriving just in time for Asian American Heritage Month. Tell us about Asian Americans, this series. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 yeah. What is it? First of all, it's, it is a five hour documentary series, which we'll talk more about the length uh, later. <laughs> we, we have some feelings about that. Um, who's directed by? Yeah, it was directed by um, Renee Tajima Pena, um, Grace Lee, S. Leo Chang, like all amazing Asian American documentarians um, who've made a lot of other really great films as well that everyone should check out because um, Asian Americans is a good starting point if you're interested in these histories. Um, but I mean, right up front, it's not like we only got five hours to cover 150 <laughs> plus years of Asian American and of how many different Americans. like communities right like yeah. how many different ethnicities how many different even and within each ethnicity I think there are different pathways to America and what it means for them to be American so the fact that we only get five hours and you know Ken Burns country music gets <laughs> eight hours is a little hurtful not gonna lie but i do think that they did a really really good job for the time that they had yeah i'm assuming we all watched all five hours oh yes oh yes i did <laughs> you all know right. I, i'm not gonna lie i was very skeptical about this project before as an asian as a quote unquote professional asian american i was i've seen a lot of documentaries and they're not all great or they're all very 101 so i really didn't want to spend time on watching a documentary that would just teach me things i already knew and having taken a lot of asian american studies classes and been really involved with you know different asian american organizations in my life um i was i was a little skeptical not gonna lie of what this could teach me and i was so pleasantly surprised it's I think they did a really smart move in focusing on specific stories of people, of specific people, and using these different figures throughout history as a kind of a window into larger issues and putting them in the context of what was happening historically in America at that time. Yeah. Having DDK, Daniel Day Kim, and Tamil told me to narrate ain't bad neither. <laughs> 
Oh, good, good move. Good move. Very distinguished voices they both have. <laughs> Han, what was your history with like Asian American history and, and what was your experience with watching this documentary? Well, that's the interesting thing because I think in LA, most of my Asian friends have had Asian American history. So I hear about them talk about that. And I did not get that opportunity in college. I actually was wondering about that. So um, going into this conversation, I actually looked up um, what my alma mater, when they brought Asian American studies, because I grew up in Houston, Texas, and there are tons of Asians there. It's like Vietnamese is the third spoken language there after English and Spanish. So um, I was very confused about why I didn't have that offering. And apparently, Asian American studies didn't get to my college until either, I, I don't know the exact date, but it was either after I started college, like near the end of my run there, or after I left. So something where I wasn't aware that that was an offering. So I don't actually have the grounding that probably both of you do. Um, I did. I have, however, been self-taught. So I've read a lot. I I think I avoided the Vietnam War a lot because war for me in general growing up is a very hard subject for me to take. Um, so I never watched any war films. Um, but I have been actually relying on PBS um, a lot to give myself a grounding. So like I watched the uh, the documentary on the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, there were some about um, internment, Japanese internment. And of course, I watched Ken Burns's 18 uh, hour um, <laughs> Vietnam War. And that is I don't want to say like all I need to know. There were a few things that I actually thought were missing. <laughs> um, yeah, that mean. was interestingly because I was like, I thought I didn't know anything. And apparently I did. Um, but at the same time, I do understand that you have to make some cuts, um, especially if you get 18 hours. You, I mean, like, come on. Um, but here it was five hours. So there were definitely Again, things. country music got eight hours eight hours and that even didn't have enough because it didn't get to the stuff i knew which i don't know anything about country music so that, that tells you something anyway um but yeah. going back yeah it, this was not long enough but we can get into why we think we yeah know. i mean asian american studies is a relatively ethnic studies by itself is a relatively new discipline in a lot of a lot of universities there's there are actually very few universities in all that have like even asian american studies classes much less a program so i think for a lot of people watching this stuff, it'll be the first time, like the first time they'll be learning any of this. And what right. I loved was they actually showed how much that these Asian American students had to fight for ethnic studies. And it was great. And of course, it was here on the West Coast. So that kind of explains to me why in my Central Coast, I guess, I yeah. didn't really, it didn't filter over yeah. it. And how that fight was a coalition amongst like, Asian students, African American students, like Latinx and students. it was a result yeah. of the Vietnam War because people were <laughs> purely were not getting that Asians are people too, basically. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, I mean, okay. what a thought. Um, obviously, there's there are a lot of stories, a lot of segments in this documentary that we can talk about all day long if we wanted to. Um, but I want to ask you all: what was your favorite? Um, what was something that you learned about that was like your favorite new thing that you learned about Ooh. in this? Documentary? Just you go first. Oh, there's so much. So again, I was a media studies major and I kind of focused that with an Asian American lens. Um, so I actually knew a lot about the stuff about anime Wong and Sesu Hasekawa. I've actually seen the cheat and I wrote a paper on it. Um, so that, that was <laughs> Dude, really cool they, to they, revisit, but they were hot. They oh. were so hot. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> holy uh, fuck. Sesu Hasekawa could 
literally be in BTS right now. I'm saying, I, like, on the record. I immediately ran to my Roku and I added TCM, Turner Classic Movies, because they're having some films, Asian American films. This, And I think they have two of his films. Yeah. Maybe? Every Wednesday, yeah. um, at yeah. Wednesday evening, they're programming blocks of classic Asian American, like, silent era films and, you know, like, fair, like, black and white films. So definitely check that out if you have access to that. But uh, personally, <laughs> I really loved the episode about the protests and the movement. Um, so I think it's called, I think it was chapter four um, called Generation Rising. So it covers the creation of the ethnic studies during the Vietnam War era from these kids, like really like 19, 18 year old kids who are still alive and have since become Asian American studies professors, which I absolutely love. And it's kind of they were probably our they're, professors, you know, they're probably, yeah, I definitely <laughs> had a few of them when I was at Cal um, or that, that era of, you know, their cohort. Um, and it's just wild seeing basically like aunties, people you, I think inherently might dismiss <laughs> as being like out of touch or um, kind of, you know, a boomer. And they were the ones leading the charge and the fact that they're still very much alive for the most part and still actively working is pretty, was pretty mind blowing to me. Um, just, and I just thought it was a really, it was maybe one of the more hopeful parts of the entire documentary because this was, it was all the things that we aspire to, right? It was activism and coalition building and really, even amongst our differences, listening to each other, not just not just within the Asian American community internally, but working with, you know, black, brown, native protesters, activists, advocates, and like winning at the end. They won. Yeah. Even when the administration tries to pull this bullshit of installing a <laughs> Japanese American dean, right? Uh, which would be brilliant if it wasn't so diabolical and, and rage inducing. But yeah, I just thought that it just showed that this new generation, which I believe that we are the next wave of this new generation. They talk about this in the documentary, but, you know, post 65 with the new immigration, yeah. we basically kind of restarted the community I mean, building. That's the thing, right? Like those people are our parents' age, but those weren't our parents. Like no, at least no, our, parents, our parents, the three of us, you know, because our parents are, are immigrants. So it's, really amazing it's kind of like almost seeing a blueprint for what your own future can look like and the work yeah. that i do or aspire to do and i'm not gonna lie i've been you know cooped up for the last six to seven weeks and i am like just ready to fight both metaphorically and literally <laughs> i am just ready to throw down so i it was very inspiring i'm fired up uh very re-energized i mean i would watch this movie i would watch a movie about the um, protests for ethnic studies in the 1960s. I would watch a movie based on almost any story um, covered in this documentary. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think Patsy Mink, who they cover in pretty, pretty, pretty decent detail for again a five-hour documentary. She deserves a biopic. Daniel Inoya, who has an incredible story on his own is a side note in her story well, he's in an this obstacle. case which he's he, like, yeah. he can even have his own movie right um and I, I just yeah it was it was really it was really heartening just to see that and this documentary i think does a really good job of navigating the conversation of how asian americans have both benefited from 
being, you know, uplifted or adjacent to whiteness and have also, you know, not had the same privileges. It's just this push and pull of being used as a tool um, in the country where everything is so black and white. So, you know, the definition of Asian-ness in regards to those two constructs was really dependent on what was going to benefit the power that be. They kind of, you know, rightfully hit, hit. I wish they kind of delved into this deeper about, you know, the relation of Asian Americans to Pacific Islanders in America. Cause at that point <laughs> they were brought over to replace a workforce. So they were very working class, but at the same time benefited from colonization and benefited from, yeah. you know, a whiteness and that and being a majority. Um, yeah, I think that was something that this documentary did. I don't think they, I wish they were a little bit more overt about saying that this is like, this is about Asian American history because I think so many people conflate Asian Americans with Pacific Islanders because we share an acronym together, even though we're two completely different communities. And I, I did see a lot of criticisms from Pacific Islanders saying, where are we in this story? And I do wish they were more upfront about like delineating that because. I can see why people are upset because they're expecting to see their stories in this and they're not seeing it or they're a footnote, right? In like this, they're like one sentence in the Hawaii section. Yeah. And especially when they go to Hawaii so much in this, like for that not to be represented, I, I totally understand why they would feel that way. Um, but, and so, yeah, if they discussed it even a little bit, it would have made it more transparent. And that's, and that's helpful because I mean, I think the way we've all been talking, like, we would be way overdue already for an Asian Americans too. And then we could program each episode to be a bit more focused. Um, not to criticize this because of course they needed to do a survey of history, which is, you know, in these, this limited time. And this is again, still new to most people. Um, and you know, there were some things I found new, like I wasn't as aware about the, uh, was it the grape strike? Um, yes, the Delano grape strike. Yeah, that's, that's a California thing. We we I think we cover that like in fourth, like a oh, very yeah. glossed over version in fourth grade California yeah. history. Me being a Texan didn't know that. So <laughs> yeah, but even in our glossed over version, we only really hear about Cesar Chavez as part of the movement. Cesar Chavez, um, we yeah. barely hear about Dolores Huerta, and we definitely don't mm-hmm. learn about Larry Eatleon, who, by the way, every picture of him in yeah. the documentary has him chomping on a cigar and just looking just generally badass. <laughs> Oh, he looked badass. And I will say Dolores Horta, shout outs to her because she is still working and organizing to this day. I mean, this helps having the female filmmakers in this and that that shows. So uh, about who is getting the focus in the history here. Yeah, though, I, I do. I do appreciate having Cesar Chavez Day is a government holiday in L.A. County, which is great. Um, except when you need to mail things and you forget it's Cesar Chavez Day. Um, but yeah, like let's we it should be like a Larry Itilong Day, too. Yeah. Um, so one of my favorite narratives was actually the second episode where they, they talked about the Japanese American incarceration. And you learn all about the Uno family, which is a story that I didn't know about. Well, it, because it's crazy, because the, like America has a history of knowing about the Civil War where you do call it like the brother versus brother thing where literally there were like relatives on the South and the North who were fighting and sometimes killing each other. Um, but this is like way more recent. And 
I, you know, and not to, you know, perpetuate any sort of stereotypes, but for one person to go against the whole family, and you know how it is when, like, one person in, in like, like, an Asian family does something, like, you disagree with, like, they don't exist. Yeah. So, so for one person to go back to Japan and then not only side with the Japanese during the World War II, but do their propaganda for them? Oh my God. <laughs> this is crazy to but, me. Like, they're all, like, honestly, Buddy Ono could get it. Like, sorry. I know he, like, <gasps> that family. I mean, can I you mean... imagine growing up with them and, like, all trying to figure out like which Uno brother. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you you know that high school had like a hierarchy of like who's going to date which Uno brother, right? I would have taken all of them. It's fine. <laughs> and like, how far apart were they? Like in age, because like who was the oldest? Who was the youngest? There was like I, eight of yeah. them, right? No, there were ten. I thought ten of them. Oh my god. Yeah, I mean, here's another story where you can totally see it becoming its own like movie or even like I think it could really work as a TV series. Oh, totally. I would love to see this Nisei Japanese family in like 40s garb because it, it kind of reminds me of The Terror where where uh, that's the second season of The Terror Infamy where it was set during uh, the Japanese internment like era and you get to see Japanese Americans with these like hair rolls and the cool I mean, like pants and stuff like that. But this is a whole family of them. Oh, my yeah. God. I mean, we see a lot of these narratives right. in like J fiction of this time period, which is like the community during that time was very divided. And I think it's a good way to explore what it means to be Asian American, right? Like it's the same struggle we're having today. Like the whole thing about we need to out American the Americans to show that we're loyal. And it's like, why though? Do we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's true because like you would think that that's not a narrative we would have and that we're beyond it. But then we have someone saying like the the response to, you know, some of the hate that's been going on is to out American you know, the Americans. And it's kind of like, I don't think Oh, that's yeah, that worked so good the first time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, because also, why are we doing stuff to show that we're American when we are? Like, how how is, like, displays changing our nature? It's not. So it's, like, definitely for show. And this show is not going to change anyone's opinion who hates. So, yeah. <laughs> like, it makes no sense like- to me. What this documentary does really well is show us that, like, you know, we've been here before. Like, history is definitely cyclical mm-hmm. because we've been, we're having the same exact conversations today that we had when the Japanese were being incarcerated, when 9-11 happened, and now when, like, China is being blamed. The lynchings. Yeah. The lynchings of the the Chinese during the exclusion period where, you know, Men, women, and children were killed, burned out of their homes, and that's what's happening to Black America as far as, like, not all of them getting lynched, but, like, what just happened in Georgia, you know? And so it's, like, just because we think we, like, we've been kind of, I don't know, positioned as the model minority, that's not true. (laughs) And we've been shown it's not true because they don't care about us. Yeah, I mean, that's been happening. That's been happening and has been happening to the Black community since they got here, right? And we've Mm -hmm. gotten little tastes and pieces of it depending on what our relationship is to to whiteness throughout history. 
but we're definitely not excluded from those that violence. Yeah, that that alignment with whiteness is something that is, I mean, still troubling today, because like who among us do not have relatives who very much have an anti-black sort of like sentiment, but then also feel like you know that 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 they are privileged, that they shouldn't be under scrutiny for anything. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you are. So I remember when my I, this like whole thing started and I was telling my mom because she lives in Texas, like, don't go out, not just because you are at risk for catching it. I was like, there's been anti-Asian hate crimes going on. And she was like, well, if anyone talked to me, I'll just tell them I'm not Chinese. I'm like, first of all, don't work like that. <laughs> first of all, mom, I was like, I know you have issues with the Chinese and the Thai people because we have not been able to go out to eat Thai food ever any, any when I've been with her. Um, but I was like, these are Americans. And so it doesn't, those, those labels, Chinese and whatever, doesn't matter to us. It shouldn't matter to us, but also it definitely doesn't matter to other people who doesn't, who don't care where anyone's from. They just want us to leave. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, definitely as someone who is a big historical buff, a history, just someone who likes to read and learn about history for fun and has, has always been like that. I think it's just so important to, I think the first step into undoing or working towards anything better is really learning, learning, right? Learning why certain systems are in place, what the history or the context of why certain images, policies, laws came into creation. I feel like once that's lit up or once that's uncovered, you can see, I think at most sane, reasonable people, reasonable people can find the thorough line of oh this was a tool that was used to either put keep us down or to uplift us but at the cost of someone else and i think once you learn the truth behind some of these things you kind of have to sit sit and think about do you want to be complicit now that you know do you want to be complicit or is this something you want to work to dismantle and I think that's where a lot of the issues come from because there's so many different waves of immigration. Everyone has a different story of how their family got here. Everyone has different circumstances, whether you chose to come, whether you were forcibly taken or whether you had nowhere, you were fleeing something. You know, that really matters as to how you relate to this country and what's offered to you when you get here. But I, I do think that you know, like our, my parents don't know any of this historical context. And so it's very easy for them to see just the surface level of things. Mm-hmm. But like knowing what I know, I'm just like, no, we, it's really hard to just sit back and be like, yeah, I can accept the certain level of privilege I have as a Chinese woman, a second generation Chinese woman whose parents were able to immigrant legally and brought over by plane, you mm-hmm. know, post 1965, I sit on a lot of privilege and it kind of hurts knowing that this was gained by people who fought, you know, for civil rights in the South who sacrificed a lot. And, and to hear sometimes like, you know, anti-black comments or and from, not just from my parents, just extended family mm-hmm. as it's just like, no, like we're the only reason why we, your kids even have this opportunity. Why I have these opportunities is because, you know, someone, some brave individual in the south said enough is enough and like put their literally put their lives and the lives of their families at risk so i think it's only right that we if you know you have to pay it forward right you have to keep paying it forward 
um, well, the good people pay it forward. The bad yeah. people, we don't fuck with them. <laughs> yeah, and the, <laughs> and 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 it's kind of just like it's shown right there where in the documentary where it's like the division is only helping. You know, yes. It's just like, do you want to <laughs> help the bad guys win? Yeah, you no, don't. No. Yeah, I mean, like we mentioned, like the elders and the the people that came before us. That this documentary really focuses on because it really focuses on like you see, you have four episodes spanning like the eighteen hundreds to the nineteen sixties, which is like where all the fight happens, and like that's none of our family's histories, right? The waves that we came in this documentary maybe spends like a quarter or maybe a half an episode on um, and where you can probably fill like another five episodes just on the history of the post 65 waves. Everything from the settlement of refugee communities, including Cambodians, Hmong, Lao, uh, Vietnamese, and like the rise of like the San Gabriel Valley as a Chinese American hub. There's still a lot of history that didn't make it onto this documentary but i think what it did really well is like show these are the important things that had to happen for us to exist now as we are and for a lot of us because there was that period in the 80s where the asian american community in america went from majority u.s born to majority foreign born right and that was the reset that was and for a lot of us like this whole history of what came before our parents even got here is news right not to us individually, Which, but like this this documentary also just further highlights to me something I feel is truly the solution to a lot of our problems in the world today, which is just more and better education, more and better and more equitable education for everyone, because this is not stuff we should be learning from a PBS documentary. This is mm-hmm. not stuff that we should be encountering. And I don't mean just from like Asian American history, but you know, the really integration of black history and slavery, like something like the 1619 project should really be a core in every curriculum. Right. In American schools. history. Very it's much. Terrible. Yeah, like, yeah. We've all went through it. It's a very glossed over. Very. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think I only heard about railroads. That might have been it. Like. Yeah. It was so. Yeah. And it starts from the beginning. It starts from when you start learning that sanitized version of Thanksgiving. And you dress up mm-hmm. like pilgrims. And your parents come. I have pictures of this. Literally mm-hmm. we made these teddy bear stamped like pilgrim costumes or you can make a pilgrim stamp Indian costume. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we would wear them and there was like some weird ceremony and like my parents have photos from this weird like performance. It was bizarre looking back. And you know, it it's, it's not, it shouldn't be your understanding of American history and the structures in place shouldn't be dependent on how good or quote unquote woke your history teacher is at any given point. And the fact that ethnic studies is usually something only people in college have access to is yep. also not ideal. Yep. You know, not everyone gets the chance to go to college. So it's increasingly more now because it's just so freaking expensive now. Yeah. So, I mean, this is like now I'm going on like my like 
let's burn this down liberal i mean sometimes rant, the, but, the solution might I mean, just be someone should just make movies out of all of these stories like this documentary literally gave you like at least 20 ideas for your next screenplay mm-hmm. oh right? should we play this game okay so we need the vincent chin biopic we need the patsy mink biopic we need the dan anoya honestly we can have two-parter we can have his like war story where he was serving in the 442 and then we're going to have his political career as the sequel that that would be Bob. we have we have the uno series Yes, the mini series. Yes, we love it. Um, we could have another. We could have a special F four four two break off of that mini series where it's like a theatrical release. Uh, which the fact that a four four two movie has not been made yet right. is incredible. How is that like possible? a big yeah. budget. I mean, they have been like made, Spielberg but not S- by Hollywood. Yeah, no, but the no, no, white no. guy's always the main yeah. character, and you're just yeah. like, no, no, we need a no. right a big budget one like that really makes it like get all of the hot Asians in there, and then make everyone watch it. Just all these these cheekbones. You, you. The thing <laughs> is, you really need them. To, the thing about war movies is that you really need them to look young. Yeah, or be young. That's something mm-hmm. that really yeah, I, I'm true. very like. It's a weird stance I take, but the average age of the World War II soldier, what I think, was 22. Right. Well, they always are very young. They're going off to war, and it's these kids. Yeah. yeah. So yes, I want to see. I want to see the movie about the draft resistors. The No No yeah. Boys. Yeah, that's the another. Nos. That's another movie. Um, we have a. I want my Jackie Chan esque, um, like. Tr- building the railroads action thriller but not ha- not shanghai <laughs> noon <laughs> it's a good start but like yeah. we could go beyond that now i want to see the stories about um, those Sikh yeah. peddlers that like integrated into black new orleans right oh my god that new family orleans, was, that was cool i didn't know anything about that that was me really either cool. that was very yeah. cool um yeah no definitely and that, 20 the, movies. And then wh- what's the one, um, the the case about where he was trying to prove that he's Caucasian. Right. And like, Bot Singh. Yeah. Um, then that uh, guy, people were, people were thirsting for that guy too. Yeah, they were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he could get it. He could get it. <laughs> I mean, like Wong Kim Ark, his court case going to the Supreme Court and establishing birthright citizenship. Oh, yeah. There's so much interesting legal history. Again, just going back to this thread of... Asian Americans and to I think to an extent other minorities of color or communities of color that are not black nor white in this country are really the battleground for a lot of these weird policies, right? Because we don't neatly fit into either section. So it has to be designated. It's a very conscious decision to designate within the framework, the existing framework. Yeah. So it's wild. Give me all these movies. Give me the Delano um, Grape Strike movie. Give me the oh, and, and how about the um, the the folk duo? Uh, oh, there is a movie made by Tad Yellow Pearl. Um, yeah, Yellow Pearl. You read this right, Yellow Pearl. Oh my god! Which I remember. This was the song that would play in front mm-hmm. of VCs. <laughs> Uh, L.A. Asian yeah, Pacific Film ago. Festival. Yeah. I mean, Nobuko uh, like, still uh, two or three years performs ago, at Tuesday right? Night Cafes in Little Tokyo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that When that song came out, I just started crying. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> um, yeah. Also, Wild was in that last episode when they're talking about 9-11. And mm-hmm. they interview for a split second Norm Mineta, mm-hmm. who was the Secretary of Transportation that actually shut down all the airways airspace in the united states on september 11th and he was he said that george bush had said that 
we have to make sure that there's no like basically that we have to be careful about the language we use because we don't want to instill fear or like prejudice against Asians, Asian Americans, like what happened to Norm in 1942. I'm like, and obviously everything he did post was like terrible. And it's not like he should get a cookie for what he should be doing. But at the same time, when you're thinking like, man, George W. Bush might know more about Japanese uh, incarceration and internment camps than some of my (laughs) friends right now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Wild. You know it's bleak when you're missing GWB. <laughs> I feel like most presidents don't want to be the one that put like a whole population in jail, right? Wow. Well, you would think. Wow. Well, <laughs> you well. would think. Oh. You would think. So you would when they make season two of this docuseries, what do you yeah. want to see? I want to see more oh. about the um like all the Southeast Asian refugees that came post like Vietnam War. Like more of those stories. Because that those segments at Vietnam when I wish that was longer because I know there's mm-hmm. more there. And there's a lot of communities that weren't included. Like they included Mimoa, who was the among um, I think state senator. From Minnesota. But there's still so much you can mine from that segment of history, including you know, the Khmer Rouge, um, the Laos uh, Secret War, and the effects of just the Vietnam War on refugee communities that came to the states in the 70s and they probably did shoot those segments like there's probably another documentary from Just everything on that their they b-roll cut, and right? cutting room floor yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. i would love to see a section about asian american entrepreneurship that goes beyond jerry i do think that's you know obviously the silicon valley tech founders have have probably made the most global impact but really exploring why certain communities are thought of in the same you know frame as as um certain businesses so why why are there so many cambodian cambodian donut shop owners i think donut king another feature document another feature documentary covers this um why are there so many vietnamese owned nail Mm -hmm. salons why are there so many korean owned um you know like liquor stores or why are there so many motels and hotels operated by Punjabi Americans? I, I, it's such a weird thing. I don't even know if most people are aware or cognizant of this, um, but I would love to explore the, and, and I think it's just such a wide swath of people. I think a lot of people we know, maybe some of our parents or our friends' parents are these people. And it's just, yeah, I mean, they, they touched yeah. a little bit on that about Chinese laundries, like Chinese people were able to do mm-hmm. laundry because that was women's work. So like the men oh, yeah. were no threat. Yeah, exactly. Right? They were allowed to do that. Like, um, yeah. yeah. And tailoring and stuff like that. Um, so I would like, well, two things I would like to see, and they're kind of more recent ish. Well, not, maybe not always, but one is sort of an offshoot of what you're talking about, Jess, which is I want to trace like the influence of Asian food in America, because first of all, the Chinese restaurant, like, I want to see what the earliest ones were, when people, like, started adopting things, when did it become super American, how, like, the fortune cookie is an American thing. Um, like, when did sushi become a thing? And, like, just, and where did, were the hot beds? Was it just San Francisco and New York? You know, and just, I kind of want to trace that because, of course, now, you know, like, we have so many, like, celebrity Asian chefs, Um that certain things are not seen as foreign anymore, but some things are. Like, for example, a lot of times I see 
if there's a recipe, it's called like Vietnamese pho. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, do we call it Japanese ramen? Yeah, I was like, that's oh, a little redundant. <laughs> right, right, right. And so it's kind of like which things are accepted and which things are not quite yet. <laughs> so that's one of the things. And I just have a deep love of food history in general about how things are made, um, and w- their origins. And then the other thing, because, and this is still a kind of recent too, but, and not quite as historical, but may, it might be, is, um, uh, athletes, because um, when we talk about Asian Americans, you know, I think the entertainers were still the anomalies back in the day, even in Hollywood. And because, you know, they were seen as physical specimens of beauty, I guess, but like they're also, they can be physical specimens of actual athletic prowess. And it's never really been acknowledged. Um because it's always been like, you know, the white or the black or whatever. And 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 maybe we can be fast or something like that. Or we can do like gymnastics or, you know, ice skating. But it's kind of like there's so many times that I think every single Olympics that the people you're cheering for are going to be the Asians. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also just even things like Michael Chang was a big deal in the 80s. There's Jeremy Lin, of course. Um and Apollo Ono and all of those and just and just how those kind of break the stereotypes of um yeah. of what Asian, people thought Asian Americans in sports yeah yeah I, really I, I do feel and and that would obviously be more of a recent episode but I think showing the history and then showing how far people have come as far as like breaking stereotypes and how they're still breaking stereotypes um is important yeah um I I, I missed out on like seeing the more contemporary stuff and that's unfortunately part of the documentary process like i talk about country music and like they didn't have anything from like <laughs> lil nas x and they didn't have taylor swift in it and i was like wait what? these are actually big deals because <laughs> the whole thing about country music was they're saying it's like mainly well they didn't touch on the racism that much but um they you know they're talking about how it was like a patriarchal thing and i'm like and dolly you know of course was standing out but i was like well there's taylor swift and all these other people now and there's people of color doing country music so here they didn't touch on any of the big strides that let's say hollywood has made um and i get it you have to cut it off at some point or else you're just going to be making this documentary forever uh, yes i'm down i'm down (laughs) for it to be an ongoing docuseries And that's the great thing about having um, this documentary as a starting point because now people have like a baseline for where they can spread out and look for more stories and more documentaries. Um, like just mentioned, the story of Cambodian refugees from the Khmer Rouge um, and their monopoly on donut shops in Southern California. That is the subject of a like 2020 documentary called Donut King that um, – should be screening soon at a bunch of Asian American virtual film festivals um, that you should look out for because that was a movie that was supposed to premiere at South by Southwest that had to change its plans. Um, and about the proliferation of Chinese food restaurants, like isn't the statistic that there's more Chinese food restaurants than like any fast food restaurants in the United States? I think it's like McDonald's, Burger <laughs> Kings, and Wendy's combined. Yeah. Um, Jennifer Aitley has a yeah, really great yeah. documentary called In Search of General yeah. So. About Chinese food and the rise of Chinese food and how it's America's favorite food. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, asking why we love the food so much, but maybe not the people. Yeah. And they do mm-hmm. touch on the fact that um, fortune cookies were created in America. In San Francisco. Well, some people think it's and, uh, Fugitsu, though, though. Yeah, I was about to say, I was about to say, uh, some people disagree on like 
which people <laughs> greet them in America. So I actually really enjoy fortune cookies, like as a food product. <laughs> so. I don't. That's the weird thing. I always give them to my dog. Like I would open the fortune and read it, but then I would give it to my dog. So yeah. I, I actually really yeah. like fortune cookies. I always eat the free ones, but like you never get them in. The funny thing is, I, I mean, I live in a very Chinese area of Los Angeles, Monterey Park, and I did not have a lot of American, quote unquote, American food growing up. So fortune cookies like were very exotic to me. <laughs> we would only get them if we went out to eat some like takeout uh, place which we never did because we either cooked or we went to some very yeah. like authentic like mom and pop store that was not going to give you a fortune well, cookie at the end we give you sl- real chinese people give you sliced oranges true. Mm-hmm. which your parents are like don't eat them you don't know how long they've been sitting out and who's touched <laughs> them right oh my I god got- <laughs> i just imagined all the oranges my mom cut for us because we had like an armada on our table and that was our dessert definitely and that that's oh, why yes. I, was, I think that's probably also part part of the reason why i can't actually eat a lot of sweets it's <laughs> <laughs> just because i ate just we barely had any sugar when i was growing up yeah well pbs's asian americans is streaming for free on pbs.org until the end of the month so if you haven't caught this series yet you still have time and i think it should be just required viewing for everyone for everyone really do we know anyone who's not asian who watched it there were some people i mean uh, i was tracking the hashtag online and there are you know white people black people commenting on it i think it's it was really interesting watching just like tracking the hashtag and seeing how many people were learning about things like Vincent Chin for the first time. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm sure that was mind blowing to yeah. them because it's, it's recent. Yeah. Like, like, I don't think that they realized how recent it yeah, was. There's that, and also just Patsy Mink and all the other kind of more hidden stories mm-hmm. that we haven't, that this documentary like focused on. And, and shout outs to the friends who, you know, made an <gasps> appearance in the documentary. It's so exciting. Always really fun to see that. They're forever enshrined <laughs> in a PBS documentary. That's something to brag about, yeah. I think. Um, so yeah, encourage everyone listening to us to go check it out if you haven't already. Um, it goes by fast. It's very well made. I mean, you have like professional documentarians working on this. So it's not like, it's not your average stuffy like PBS like Wow, is that a dig at someone, Marvin? No. Ooh, that's, I, that's a little sassy. I actually have to say I love PBS documentaries. So I don't, I don't agree that the rest of them are stuffy uh i do think that this goes fast though because it is only five five hours and you think that sounds long and, and it's not i mean did you watch no, the irishman it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's that's true it is like only a third longer it's like 33 percent longer than the irishman which is just one story about a bunch of old white dudes so you can watch a five-hour documentary about an incredible range of amazing Asian-American communities over 150 years. Amazing. All right. Well, on that note, that'll do it for this episode of Good Pop. Jess, Han, if people want to find out more about your thoughts about, you know, pop culture or whatever, where can they go? They can find me at Jess Jew Tweets. And they can find me at Hanonymous, H-A-N-H-O-N-Y-M-O-U-S. And you can find me at Marvin Yeh. That's M-A-R-V-I-N-Y-U-E-H. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Good Pop. I hope you enjoyed our discussion of PBS's Asian Americans docu-series. 
Don't forget to follow our show by going to goodpop.club and subscribing to us on your favorite podcatcher. We are a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American hosted podcasts, including such great shows like They Call Us Bruce, Saturday School, and more. You can find out more about the collective at podcastpotluck.com. And yeah, um, happy. we're halfway through Asian Pacific Heritage Month, um, almost to the end of the tunnel. Jess, we're almost done. Almost there. Then we can sleep. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us again, and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everyone. It's an exciting time in Asian America. There are more movies, TV shows, books, and music reflecting us than ever. But all of these represent just a small slice of Asian American culture and experiences. So what do we do? Tell more slices. Asian Americana is a show that explores these slices of distinctly Asian American culture and history. We've talked about how Chinese Americans built California's Sacramento Delta, the art scene turns gallery institution giant robot, a play that explores the lost Cambodian pop music of the 60s and 70s, and, of course, Phoba, just to name a few stories. You can find Asian Americana at asianamericana.com or on your podcast app.